This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week reflecting on historical events triggered by Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. Zoomers may be watching the horrifying war in Ukraine and reminded of memories of the Cold War or even World War II. Libby brought up the topic with our Monday Zoomer squad, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president of Zoomer Media. I think it's true that a lot of people remember. I'm I'm struck, particularly in my case, uh, you talk about the Cold War, uh, and I have seen a few articles on this, of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 and the Czechoslovakian spring of 1968, when um, the uh, USSR moved tanks, brutally suppressed popular uh, uprisings, executed the leaders in the case of Hungary. And we had a treaty uh, uh, at that time that gave them that freedom of operation behind the so-called Iron Curtain, that we were not going to go to war with them. And the United States, in particular, Eisenhower was going to stand off and condemn it and do what he could, but basically let them let them do what they wanted within that uh, area. And you contrast that to the the universal condemnation and action. I mean, they they're they're the destructiveness of the the Russian economy. How quickly we've mobilized. The West has mobilized suddenly to, uh, you know, the ruble is collapsing. The stock market's closed. They're going to be shut out like within days. This thing, and you know, I don't think that they ever calculated. And it is a big contrast from the Cold War. Well, uh, you know, some of us remember, um, you know, in the Cold War where little kids were told uh, how to put your head between your knees in the event of a nuclear attack. Sure. Remember those? I mean, yeah. you know, yesterday uh, Putin put his nuclear defenses on high alert, which is very scary, Bill. It's very, it's very scary, and especially for those of us who know people who are from there, are there. I had the opportunity uh, through my work in the early 70s to be in the Soviet Union uh, a couple of times and visited uh, Kiev and uh, Poltava, other uh, uh, towns and cities, and also other areas of the Soviet Union. And my one huge memory from then was how fiercely independent the Ukrainians were. Uh, they were mostly farmers uh, outside of the cities, and all of them uh, were uh, were forced to uh, combine their goods from their farm and sell them together. But every one of them had a small plot behind their own home or house where they grew their own vegetables. They went to an informal market and shared them, and their independence was just so clear at that time, even though they were uh, supposedly a part of the Soviet Union, that I can just imagine how this is affecting them now and the memories back to those days. 
Peter, you're the youngin in this group. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, I have family experience. My my uh, grandfather covered the um, famine in Ukraine in the 30s, the, the Russian enforced famine, which killed millions and millions of uh, Ukrainians. And, the and, Holodomor. Uh, yeah. yeah, and 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 a lot of them came to Canada as a result. But uh, um, so it, it's sort of that kind of feeling. I, I, I imagine the older Ukrainians here remember it well. When uh, you know, um, you know, it, it was under a different madman back then, Joseph Stalin. But um, like, it, it's history repeating itself again, and uh, just the unpredictability of the where where Russia is going to go what Russia is going to do next and, and whether, you know, how, how we stay out of an armed conflict here. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. Fightback's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fightback on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Members of relief organizations are scrambling to get humanitarian aid to people in Ukraine and to the thousands fleeing Ukraine and the war waged on their country by Russia's leader. But not all of the relief efforts are coming from registered charities. There are even private efforts, people getting cash to their relatives, especially since there are limits on the amounts people can withdraw in Ukraine. There is also demand to bring in and fast-track Ukrainian refugees to Ontario and Canada. On Monday, Libby spoke with immigration lawyer Betsy Kane, along with two representatives from within the Canadian-Ukrainian community, Ihor Kozak, vice president of the League of Ukrainian Canadians and co-founder of the Friends of Ukraine Defense Forces Fund, and Orest Sklarenko, president of the Canada-Ukraine Foundation. The Canada-Ukraine Foundation, uh, in partnership with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, for over uh, 27 years, 28 years now, has been helping coordinate and deliver humanitarian programming from Canada to Ukraine. While we were hoping that we wouldn't have to activate uh, on this appeal, we've been preparing for um, this tragedy that's happening in our homeland for uh, for a couple of months and getting this appeal together. And uh, we're uh, basically partnering with uh, existing NGOs on the ground in Ukraine who have uh, warehouses and supply chains to, to, to prepare food and medicine packages uh, for the, the internally displaced um, families in Ukraine. And what we've heard from the, the World Health Organization's health cluster is the number of displaced people has grown from 3 million to 18 million. The need is growing. And uh, unfortunately, whenever this ends, the humanitarian uh, catastrophe on the ground will be uh, significant. And we're going to need to help these people however we can. Ihor Kozak, so uh, that's uh, the challenge on the delivery of uh, material. How do you get money there? Uh, we are friends of Ukraine Defense Forces Fund, and we are specifically uh, focusing uh, on uh, providing support to uh, Ukrainian military, non-lethal military aid, uh, also to the veterans, rehabilitation family, to those who uh, died on the battlefields. And uh, we have been doing this work since uh, 2014. Uh, and therefore, we do have uh, a network of people who've been delivering that assistance and distributing this and accounting for it since uh, 2014. Uh, obviously, 
since uh, this uh, massive, uh, you know, attacks uh, happen on the Ukrainian cities. And by the way, I'm as a Canadian a retired military officer who've been to various hotspots around the world. I still can't believe that is happening. And the size of this attack is just, uh, it's unimaginable. It's surreal. It's something that we can, you know, seen the last time, I guess, during the Second World War. So the challenge uh, is great. And uh, we are adjusting. We are working primarily now through Poland. And we have a corridor into Ukraine and working with the government in Ukraine, but mainly with our volunteer organizations, which which established a relationship over the past uh, over the past eight year of this war. Betsy Kane, uh, there's a lot of talk about fast tracking and bringing in Ukrainian re- refugees. I mean, you know, just last week uh, we did a segment here on this show about the current backlog, which is uh, seems like a mess. Well, the refugee issue is very different than the backlog issue. There are differences. Now, uh, the government of Canada has not yet made any formal announcements about uh, bringing in Ukrainians as refugees. What they have in the very early days is offered to prioritize processing for people already in the queue or people who have temporary residence or other applications in the pipeline already. But it's a very early days, and these are just interim such initial measures that the government has rapidly rolled out, which is a credit to them. And we expect um, that the government of Canada will make further announcements in the weeks to come on how they will assist Ukrainians in terms of getting out to Canada, getting out of Ukraine and through to Canada in some way, shape or form, either through the traditional um, avenues or whether um, Canada will open up some type of humanitarian class or help uh, to evacuate uh, or and assist Ukrainians in the neighboring com- countries, because we have closed all um, consular services in Ukraine at the moment, unfortunately. Oris, last 20 seconds to you. I'll just uh, make an appeal to the listeners to, uh, to um, visit cufoundation.ca. It's the Canada-Ukraine Foundation, and consider supporting this appeal. Thank you so much for your time. Immigration lawyer Betsy Kane, Ihor Kozak, vice president of the League of Ukrainian Canadians and co-founder of the Friends of Ukraine Defense Forces Fund, and Orest Sklarenko, president of the Canada-Ukraine Foundation. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, what should Canada be doing in the face of Putin's war against Ukraine? Our strategy panelists discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine was top of mind for our Tuesday strategy panel. Is Canada doing enough to not only stand with Ukraine, but to provide adequate military equipment and humanitarian aid? Libby asked this question of Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, John Capobianco, conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former liberal Ontario finance minister. The fact that everyone's supporting it, the fact that the West seems to be united in these endeavors, speaks volumes for the efforts that are being made. 
uh, by many of the countries, including Canada. Uh, even the opposition, I feel, recognize the importance of what's happening uh, to support the democracy, real democracy, not what was happening in our, in our recent weeks in, in Ottawa. This really does uh, bring to light uh, the volatility, the uncertainty, and, and the risks for these countries not to be there to avoid uh, the, the, the threat of those that are being aggressors. And I think Canada's doing the right thing. Uh, John? You know, I, I, I'll give the Prime Minister credit when, when credit is due. And, and, and I think on this particular file, I think he's been doing a, a good job for him and his government. I think the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, has been tremendously um, uh, um, good with respect to how she's been handling it. So I would say that they're, they're making the right moves. And, and they're, you know, in some cases they may be slow, but they're responding. And, and as you said earlier in your, in your, um, in your remarks, you know, maybe the government sort of reversed their initial thought about not sending in sending in artillery and, and some of the more more threatening weapons, and now they are. So I, I do think they're being responsive. I do think that the the sanctions and and more importantly the words that are coming out of the of the not only the prime minister but of the ministers in charge um, have been really effective. And 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 sort of there's no kind of middle ground or or you know you know blasé kind of remarks. These are they've been making some really strong stringent comments about what's been happening uh, out of Russia. And I think that's a positive sign, given the relationship uh, that Canada has with Ukraine and with Ukrainian people that are, are quite substantive uh, here in, in Canada. So all in all, I think it's, it's good. I see that, uh, you know, Candace Bergen, our inter- the interim conservative leader, has been also very positive and said that they support the Canadian government, which, again, in times of crisis, is important to see, you know, all the political parties sort of rally together and, and not have division. So I think that's a positive step as well. Um, the sanctions are important. I don't know if they're going to have any effect, but uh, it's certainly, certainly, I think, uh, uh, having an effect on how Russia is prepared to move forward on this, because I think even the Ukrainian resistance has surprised them. Uh, and, and now they're retreating and, and sort of rethinking how they're going to approach it again, which all is good signs. Karen, uh, is Canada doing enough? I mean, we have the biggest uh, Ukrainian diaspora. We saw the deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, leading the demonstration, wearing, you know, traditional garb. Yeah, I think that um, it is a, a certainly a moment where Canada um, was faced with a choice of where we were going to stand, and we're sol- solidly behind our allies, which, um, you know, it sounds intuitive, but it hasn't been. And when we think about, you know, the last several years and our, our relationship with the U.S., our relationship with China, it was one of straddling and trying to get the best of both worlds. And in this case, you know, there was some resistance about not wanting to um, upset Russia by sending heavy armory equipment. But now all all of that rightly has been recognized by Canada. No, we need to take a side. It needs to be with our allies and that we are doing something, again, following suit of Germany and other countries that have typically been reluctant to get involved and send that heavy artillery, recognizing that we need to support Ukraine. We need to support Ukraine. Otherwise, it really does beg the question whether any of these international alliances have any meaning at all if we can't protect a democratic nation from being invaded. Again, even though they're not part of NATO, it's still, I, I, I don't think the world can just sit back and watch this happen because then what does it mean for Taiwan? What does it mean for other, other nations that are democratic nations that serve a strategic interest for a more powerful global entity? And so I, I think this is important in, in so many ways, and I'm glad to see that Canada has recognized that these take aside.
Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, John Capobianco, conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former liberal Ontario finance minister. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There's no doubt Western-imposed sanctions against Russia are working, and those in the Vladimir Putin regime, Russian oligarchs, as well as average Russian people are feeling the pain, including much higher interest rates. And here in Canada, we've been warned by the Trudeau liberals, we will also experience the ripple effect. For one, gas prices have been steadily rising, as energy watchdog Dan McTagg told us when he joined Fight Back on Tuesday. Uh, Unless something dramatic should change now, uh, we're looking at a six cent increase to a dollar 66.9 cents a liter come Thursday. Might drop a penny between now and the afternoon, but so far the market is indicating uh, some uh, steep increases. Of course, if any of your listeners are using diesel, it's up five cents tomorrow and uh, up another seven cents at least on uh, uh, on Thursday. So between both of those, uh, gasoline, you might say, hey, no big deal. I don't drive a car. But uh, you got to keep an eye on diesel because that's the one that uh, drives your infrastructure. Uh, that's the uh, stuff that trucks use to transport your food. So if you're concerned about grocery prices and fasten your seatbelts, it's about to get a whole lot worse. How is that related to sanctions and the situation in uh, Ukraine? Well, Canada's uh, talk of sanctions came really uh, as a result of Europe imposing sanctions, which was far more effective given that they're the ones using uh, the majority of Russian oil and uh, in particular Russian gas, uh, natural gas. Um, So uh, the increase here has everything to do with the fact that uh, with sanctioned oil and gas by the biggest importers uh, in Europe, uh, it's likely that uh, there's going to be even further increase in the price of oil. It's gone up, by the way, uh, since this morning, uh, what, seven bucks a barrel already. So I wouldn't uh, discount between now and, say, this time next week, oil moving to $120 a barrel, which in turn would uh, lead to another 10, perhaps even a 15 cents a litre increase. And I don't think these things, Libby, are short-term. So, yes, the sanctions are the one reason, but uh, before all this began last week with the madman Putin doing what he's doing, uh, we, um, we already had a big problem in Canada and globally, and everyone wanted to look the other way. I refused to allow that to happen. We had a supply crunch, and that's because we're saying, oh, we, we, we can buy electric vehicles, or we can get solar panels, or we can get windmills. That's all nice, but uh, the world needs more oil, not less, and Canada is no longer in a position where it can supply what the world needs. We've blocked uh, pipelines in this country, and that's a problem. Shouldn't the other side of this be good for our economy, good for our oil producers? Yeah, except we can't take advantage of it. Uh, to some extent, we've been able to increase a bit of pipeline capacity on one line that I can think of. Uh, it's called uh, Line 3, and it was just finished a couple of months ago. But beyond that, you know, we've got in Ottawa. And by the way, Libby, I'm not being partisan here. You know, I was a Liberal MP, Liberal MP for 18 years, 39 years in the trenches of that party, going back to, you know, the early days. Of I remember. Just purely Trudeau. I got to tell you that uh, when you have a party that says it kills the East, uh, the Energy East Pipeline, the Northern Gate, the Gateway Pipeline, creates all sorts of regulatory uncertainty to pipeline makers who are willing to use public in their own 
financial private money to build pipelines and then decide to leave as they did with Trans Mountain. Little wonder Canada doesn't have the ability to get pipelines uh, to market, not just for oil, but think of what happened last week. While we were all focused on the truckers' convoy and the Emergencies Act, uh, the Trudeau government did very little to respond to the act of violence and terrorism that we saw on one of our main natural gas pipelines that uh, the world desperately needs, uh, not only clean, but obviously approved by every level of government. So we have a problem, Canada, and uh, we've got to start to wake up. We have a solution, but we've got ourselves so heavily wound up in this idea that climate is everything and uh, nothing else matters. I think now the priorities of Canadians has changed and have changed. And uh, woe to the political party of any stripe that says no to building an east-west pipeline in this country, because it isn't just Canada that needs it. It's the rest of the world. And uh, don't take my word for it. You have a weak Canadian dollar. Anybody who has looked at the American dollar and says, boy, last time we saw $100 oil, the Canadian dollar was on par with the U.S. greenback. We price everything, Libby, in this country based on the U.S. dollar. So a weak Canadian dollar, because we're not selling enough oil and gas, means that you and I are paying an extra, for instance, 15 cents a litre. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Since Dan joined Fight Back on Tuesday, gas prices have steadily risen to close to $1.80 a litre for regular. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. David in Toronto phone to talk about the higher gas prices we're experiencing. Poor Canadian energy policy causes very high prices in our economy, not just for fuel, all energy and food. And it's a shame that we have such poor policy and it's dividing the country and it's a sad situation. Thank you. Barry in Orangeville also called about skyrocketing fuel prices. Yeah, I'd just like to say that part of the price increases in our energy costs is the carbon tax, which is unfairly put on Canadian consumers and Canadian businesses. Mm -hmm. And a common sense would be put the carbon tax on all imports from countries with dirty economies. Our economy is not that dirty and we produce less than 1.3% of the world's carbon. Marion in Martintown called about resuming travel, but with the war against Ukraine in mind. My husband and I booked a trip to Cyprus in October 2019, which of course has been put off and put off. And so we, a couple of weeks ago with our travel agent, we got everything finalized, ready to go to Cyprus for two weeks and then heading to the UK, leaving here on the 20th of April. So we're a little concerned. We're certainly paying close attention to what is going on. And, you know, we're just worried about traveling during that time if anything comes out. But at this point, we're very eager to get going because, like you were saying, we, we're anxious to get going after the lockdown. Margaret in Thornhill phoned about her concerns with Vladimir Putin's ambitions. I have been watching uh, the crisis in Ukraine, and it should never happen 
But Putin is a very stubborn man, and uh, he doesn't only want to take one part of Ukraine, but all the other parts. But then eventually he'll want to take Poland and Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. Who knows? But we have to stop all this very soon. Tony in Etobicoke also called about the Russian dictator. There's no way that Putin himself is going to stop the war and have himself embarrassed in what he's done. He's going to continue and continue. And I believe he wants Ukraine so the North Koreans can come in and use some of that land. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Sita from Mississauga, who phoned to talk about the war against Ukraine and her admiration of Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. This war is so sad. Since we're all going through such a stressful time, Ukraine president is an example of what all other leaders should be. He is so brave, and he put his life last to defend his people. It's amazing that this country is still standing up alone to Russia, and so far is winning. I'm happy with the West West and the rest of the world doing all they can to support Ukraine. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of The Best of Fight Back. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.